looking for a laptop that delivers on both performance and price, the Acer Swift 5 offers a powerful Intel Core processor, super slim design, and more. Discover new possibilities with the Acer Swift 5. Go to acer.com, click on store, and enter coupon code BIGPICTURE at checkout to receive 10% off, plus free ground shipping on a Swift Series laptop, including already discounted models. The offer is valid through April 30th, 2018, and limited to one per qualified order. Windows Hello, the password is you, Windows 10. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it much easier to turn your idea into a unique website. So showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using the beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers at Squarespace. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade here. It's just go to squarespace.com and you can get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code BIGPICTURE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And be sure to stick around on this episode of The Big Picture. First, I'll be talking with my colleague, Chris Ryan, and then a bonus segment will be coming about Steven Spielberg with the podfather himself, Bill Simmons, my boss, and yours. E.T. Home from... E.T. Phone home. Mm. E.T. Phone home. E.T. Phone home. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Snake in the plane, Jacques! Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie! I hate snakes, Jacques! I hate you! My dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. I am the President of the United States of America, clothed in immense power. You will procure me these votes. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the most interesting podcasters in the world. Yes, I'm joined today, clothed in immense power, Chris Ryan. Chris, thanks for joining me. No, no, no! Oh my goodness. The energy is high, and it's high because it's Ready Player One Day, Steven Spielberg's newest film, uh, an interesting movie, and one that Chris hasn't seen, but I have seen. But we're not here to talk specifically about Ready Player One. We're here to talk about... The top five Steven Spielberg movies of all time, and, and maybe some of the worst. Chris, thank you for uh, for doing this. It's my absolute pleasure. Chris, before we get too deep into it, give me just your 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 nutshell description of your relationship to Steven Spielberg. Uh, it's my film school. So uh, the reason I love Steven Spielberg is that he makes these mass entertainments, but literally taught me the power of lighting, of camera movement, of composition, of visual storytelling, of the, the way you can use music to trigger an emotion, the way you can use editing to heighten or lower the tempo of a film, how to tell stories in a distinctly cinematic way. And I don't think that I, you know, have really thought about this a lot. I think Scorsese probably means more to me as a director, and I think I think Scorsese, there are certain Scorsese movies that you watch at certain points in your life that wind up having a really outsized impact, at least I think for you and I, I can safely say, and I think Paul Thomas Anderson has been somebody like that, and I think Quentin Tarantino has been somebody like that. But those guys can go off on their 
their archipelagios, their their islands, and kind of disappear for a while. And Spielberg has been a consistent presence in our entire lives. He more or less shaped the popular culture's concept of childhood and I think has had a huge, huge impact on how we understand what a good movie is and what an interesting movie is and what is interesting about movies. And there's something so interesting about one of the things that you said, which is that he doesn't stop. We're only four months removed from The Post, which was nominated for Best Picture, and here we are now, and there's another hardcore popcorn mm-hmm. entertainment from Steven Spielberg. Um, one thing that I have found interesting about the conversation around him, and our colleague Brian Curtis noted this too, is you know I can remember a time when people would complain about Steven Spielberg not being serious enough, mm-hmm. and Ready Player One has been positioned as this movie about you know Steven like can he learn to be fun again? And you know he's in his 70s now, and he is this this wizened eminence gris of the of the filmmaking community. Are you anticipating a, a fun Spielberg movie now at this at this stage of your life? I find there's a lot of fun in a lot of his serious movies. Uh, I find some of his fun movies to be a little bit of a drag. I'm looking forward to this because I think that uh, everything about it suggests that I wouldn't like it mm-hmm. if this was. What, any, what do you mean by that? I'm just not interested in like virtual reality as a as a like setting. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of plotline about a young. Messiah figure who saves the world in this specific, I don't know what, what, what the right word would be, like this Mayu, but like it would just basically be like, I know that, that these things have come along before, like the Matrix and, you know, like Lords of Arabia and Star Wars are all about like these orphans who save the world. But I think that this one in particular is just like, I, I kind of like to feel a little bit more practical in my effects. Um, but if there's anybody who can get me into it, it's probably him. I don't want to spoil too much about our list, but that's why War Horse is your number one pick, right? <laughs> you, right. You're about the real that's world. Right. Yeah. About, about... I actually just like some of the uh, B-roll he's already shot for the kidnapping of <laughs> Alvaro Morado or whatever it's called. Let's cut to the chase. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about some of these movies. I want to start with your number five. What do you got? My number five favorite Steven Spielberg movie, uh, speaking of spectacle, is Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I rewatched it recently. One of the things that really jumps out when you see it is just how lean it actually is. The philosophy and the sort of the themes of the movie are really woven into a very tight escape story. Uh, it, it is very much a, a lean, middleweight fighter. And that's sort of, you don't really think about that because when you think about these spectacles that we see these days, your Transformers movies, your Avengers movies, you think of bloat, you think of like very, very, very long set pieces in which the world crumbles. This is actually like, it's a movie about a park. It's kind of a like a three or four hander. It's mm-hmm. really not. The, it's it's really really tight. Uh, it still goes so hard. You are still so emotionally wrapped up in everything that happens. Everybody in it is delightful. It's perfectly cast, uh, and I still think it has like the best version of Spielberg Wonderface, which is when a character in a Spielberg movie comes across something amazing. He captures wonder in a way that no other filmmaker really ever has. And there's several shots, most famously Sam Neill turning Laura Dern's head towards a brontosaurus, which I think is one of the, you know, like the, the sort of great shots of my of my actual movie-going experience. Listening to you talk about it, I feel like Laura Dern with her head down <laughs> on the breathing. Triceratops. Uh, triceratops. Yeah. Um, Jurassic Park is wonderful. It's also in my top five. Yeah. Uh, I think it is kind of the perfect middle ground the, the, the median point of Spielberg's career. It's basically right when he was in his late 40s, early 50s when it's made. 
it is both spectacle and about childhood and about humanity and about the mistakes that we make and how we can solve them. It's also pure IP. And yeah. now this year we're going to have another Jurassic Park sequel. I think this is the fifth Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And even though he's just an executive producer on those movies, it, it is this interesting spin off of his imagination. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you is that, you know, in Jurassic Park, there's a lot of cheeky stuff about the merchandising of Jurassic Park. How are, how is the self-referentiality handled in Ready Player One? Uh, pretty sleekly. Okay. Um, I think it's not so self-obsessed. In fact, he's given a couple of interviews in which he's talked about removing some of the things. I think E.T. in particular like, does not appear in the movie and is in the book. ILM people threw in like a gremlin in some place. And, yes. Like he was just like, God damn it. <laughs> there are some things that are his things in the movie, uh-huh. but um, without spoiling anything sure. for people who haven't seen it, there is a much deeper and fascinating homage to Stanley Kubrick mm. that is like maybe the best part of the movie. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. That, that part I really like. Um, okay. My number five is uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You may have heard of it. Yeah. It is the first film about Indiana Jones. Damn, it's really good. Uh, I think it's hard to describe um, what's good about that movie 25 years later, but it is a neat fusion of his point of view and George Lucas's point of view and their fascination with the serialized hero comic strip stories of the 30s and 40s and 50s that they grew up on. And it is also, I rewatched it as well, and it is the best action hero star performance, I think, ever. Yeah. Harrison Ford is so captivating as a like a nerd professor yeah. who be, transforms himself into a hero. And I think the lessons that we took from that character that like Chris Pratt took maybe from that character are not the ones that I think we should have been taking. You know, the He's less- Superman. He's Clark Kent and Superman at the same time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There, yeah. There's something so fascinating about that. I think also just it's, a, it's very similar to Jurassic Park in so far as it's told perfectly. It's tighter than you remember. Mm-hmm. It is. It did create this whole unraveling world of IP. But in fact, it's really just a small adventure story. And even though it's about the Ark of the Covenant and Nazi Germany and the pursuit of things. It's basically just about a guy who like keeps falling down and those are those are my favorite kinds of movies. If anybody is somehow listening to the big picture and doesn't already know this, I uh, I should sh- shout out that I think it's available on Steven Soderbergh's website. You can watch Steven Soderbergh. It's basically his silent film remix of Raiders. Black and white. Black and white film with the social network score playing over it. And it is really something to Behold, if you get a chance to check it out. Hardcore Chris Ryan content. Yeah. I remember the day that that was released, you were you, your eyes were a bit blinkered. I was just like, this. the internet's great. Yeah, it was very cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a, that's a testament to Soderbergh being a, a wonderful weirdo, devoting yeah. his time to doing that. What's your number four movie? So my num- number four is, uh, is Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it should probably be higher if we're really just ranking uh, in terms of achievement. The first 45 minutes of this movie are probably the most virtuistic is probably the most virtuistic large scale selection of any one filmmakers ever ever done like i don't think i can think of as long of a section of a movie the opening of 2001 the opening of there will be blood i'm sure that i'm forgetting things but just something where you're basically you realize 40 minutes in you haven't taken a breath um, you mean the, the entire Stormy the yeah, Beaches of Normandy? The beach, yeah. to, where, to where he gets in his hands shaking when he opens his canteen at the end of the, at the, of the D-Day landing. We don't even learn what the movie is about. No. We, it's, it's just pure carnage. No. And I think that that film is two films. I think it's the, it's the landing and then there's the sort of 
No, I wouldn't say hackneyed, but it's 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 a little like greatest generation porn in the second half. Although I think that there's really good stuff about PTSD and there's really, I mean, his sense of place is impeccable. Um, but there's a lot of like Ed Burns chewing scenery, you know, uh, a lot of Vin Diesel's chewing scenery. What a, what an interesting cast that movie had. Fascinating. Adam Goldberg. Yeah. And Matt Damon, yeah. obviously, as the Ted titular Danson. hero. Ted Danson. Paul yeah. Giamatti. It's a very good Tom Hanks performance, I yeah. think. A very underrated Tom Hanks performance. But yeah, my, it, that's number seven on my list, um, only because I think the back half is a little baggy. And it, it it's, it's... Ends it, three or four times. Yeah. 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 And it, it, I, I think it's it says all it needs to say in those first 40 minutes, which is... Um, war as hell yeah. you know and, it, and we'd never seen it in that way and i think since then we've seen some movies that have rendered violence in in international conflict in pretty severe ways but this was i think that, that 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 was a traumatic kind of a movie changing first 40 minutes oh, right yeah. yeah yeah um my number four is schindler's list which is kind of the other side of the coin on saving private yes. ryan um and i think does actually do some of the things that the back half of ryan i, I think wish was doing which is kind of reckoning with the other side of the conflict and and um that's a very it's a very stately and purposefully important movie it it knows what it wants to be um someone told me a story recently that billy wilder learned that steven spielberg acquired the rights to schindler's list and he came to steven before he made the movie this is when billy wilder legendary hollywood filmmaker um was in his 70s or 80s and right, right before he passed away and said steven I know you have the rights to this story. I desperately want to make this film. It's my my last movie, right? My last movie. This is going to be my send-off to Hollywood. This is going to say everything I need to say. Obviously, Billy Wilder, famously an immigrant, a survivor of World War II, et cetera, et cetera. And this may be hearsay, but from what I was told, Steven Spielberg said, nope, I'm going to do it. And he did. And mm-hmm. he did it for obvious reasons. I think he knew the power of the material. I think he knew his personal connection to it. I think it's the kind of movie that if you see now, it almost feels cliche mm-hmm. because so many of the choices that are made in telling it set a kind of prestige historical drama standard. But when he did it, and I think specifically the little girl in the red dress, which is this iconic image of innocence lost in the middle of conflict, um, is just – is still – if you accept it on its own terms – Amazing filmmaking. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you brought up the little girl in the red dress because with Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, and the movie that's my number three, mm-hmm. I think it gets right up to the edge of, if you're talking about Steven Spielberg as he's either making serious movies or fun movies, either way, he has a master manipulator. And I think during the fun movies, you're a little bit more like, oh, this guy, he's really knows how to pull my heartstrings, you know? But when you're in these serious films and when you're watching something like Munich and when you're watching something like Amistad and when you're watching something like my third movie, which is Empire of the Sun. What a take. It really does. I, now, Empire of the Sun is partially because it's a very personal film for me. My dad, like, I, I mean, my dad didn't have the experience of Christian Bale's character. Your father, Christian my Bale. My father was the, around the same age of J.G. Ballard. He's also English, also a World War II sort of lived through that in his early childhood. And uh, he introduced me to that movie. I find the screenplay by Tom Stopper to be the most, w- one of the more literate and intriguing and amb- ambiguous, morally ambiguous screenplays that Spielberg's directed. Kushner obviously is another, he's worked with great people, Kushner, Steve Zalian. But I love the the dialogue in Empire of the Sun. There are a lot of moments in Empire of the Sun that are really on the line between moving and 
manipulative. Um, but they are... I think they show him... The reason I like Empire of the Sun the most is because so many of his films are about childhood, right? But this is a film where you are seeing adulthood through the eyes of a child. And I think that that's actually the focus. It's not so much about, like, isn't innocence this incredible time when we get to ride bikes and anything is possible? It's actually, like, the world is a hellish place for adults and children. And this is a child observing adultery, observing starvation, observing war, observing brutality, and observing sometimes salvation and hope and, and humanity. And, but it's, it's really locked in on the perspective of the Christian Bale Jim character throughout the movie. And in terms, there's a few sequences that are up there with anything he's ever done. The Cadillac of the sky sequences, the saluting the Japanese uh, pilots and the sparks flying off of the planes uh, scene. And I think has some of the best performances in any Spielberg movie, Bale, and Malkovich is incredible in Empire of the Sun. So I, I know it's probably high for most people, but I'm going to put Empire of the Sun at three. It's a great and original pick, perfect for a podcast like this. <laughs> I will give my pick for number three right after this when we get a word from our sponsor. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Ready to start your new business? Make it stand out with Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. Showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products. And it's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. Use Squarespace's analytics to help you grow in real time, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Though if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer service is there to support you. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Make it with Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code BIGPICTURE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code BIGPICTURE. With the Google Assistant, you can complete over a million actions on your phone, in your car, and around the house. For example, hey Google, add chips and salsa to my shopping list. Okay, I've added chips and salsa to your shopping list. Download the Google Assistant. We're back on the big picture with Chris Ryan, who just shared his number three Steven Spielberg movie of all time. I'm going to share my number three Steven Spielberg movie of all time right now. It's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The more I look at my list, the more boring it feels to me. That's what I was worried about with mine. And it's tricky, right? Because when you look at the sum total of his career, you have all of these movies that are really fun, but are not necessarily don't seem as important. And like Schindler's List is an important film, and it's, it's trying to be important, and it is. Close Encounters, I think, is also important in a different way. It sets a different kind of template for science fiction storytelling, for stories about families, for stories about obsession, and for stories about divorce and the, the, the fissures that happen in families, which is also a very interesting theme, yeah. especially the first half of Spielberg's career. You know, I would love for um, War of the Worlds to be in my top five. But pretty I, close for me. I, I love War of the Worlds and I love watching it. But the truth is, is there's nothing in War of the Worlds that is better than Close Encounters. Yeah. Like Close Encounters basically is doing a lot of that work in the first place minus some action set pieces. And 
you know, Close Encounters, Steven Spielberg, famously child of divorce. I think children of divorce uh, have an interesting relationship to this movie um, and the way that they – the impossibility of communication and how hard it is to kind of figure out what's more important, what's right in front of you or what's in the great beyond. Yeah. Um, I probably watch it once a year. I think it's not my number one because it's not as purely entertaining as my numbers two and one. But – Man, it's got so many ideas in it. It's, it also has, to your point about great performances, Richard Dreyfuss and Melinda Dillon are both amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has the the um, the flex of putting a filmmaker in a role as an actor. Truffaut. Yeah. Francois Truffaut, who gives a great performance in this movie. Uh, it's so beautiful, and the music is so incredible and iconic. It's almost, it's one of the, It's another one of those movies that's actually— Feels dumb to try to explain it. It's the most 70s American cinema of his movies. Came Mm. out in 77. I find it fascinating because, you know, Spielberg is often blamed or credited, along with George Lucas, as bringing about the era of the blockbuster. But I feel like Close Encounters sort of got overshadowed by Star Wars a little bit. um, And that some of the ways in which he was trying to express himself in Close Encounters and the ways in which he was... I don't feel like he had settled into this is what every movie has to have, which I think is something that he does come come around to. There's not too many complicated heroes in Spielberg movies. There's usually a central figure who, even if they start off a little bit shaky, wind up being pretty morally upright. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of Daniel Plainviews in there. No. Uh, I think that um, that's one of the things that's most interesting about Close Encounters. It's not that anybody's off as much as it's unclear where the hero is in that movie because it is somewhat of an ensemble piece and it's it's a little bit more about ideas than it is about characters, I think. Yeah, last year there was a really interesting, pretty hagiographic uh, documentary about Spielberg that aired on HBO. Yeah. And the one of the primary focuses of that story is about his parents and the relationship that his parents had and his the, the the disruption, the breakup of their marriage, and how it influenced a lot of his movies. That it's like the original wound, right? Exactly. Yeah. And for many years, he thought that his father just abandoned him and abandoned his mother. And we come to learn in the movie, which I had not known, though I suspect if you've read Spielberg biographies, you know this, that in fact it was his mother who was having an affair with one of his father's best friends and that his father, out of a sense of sort of duty, masculine duty, left and allowed her to have that relationship. And, you know, they actually still are friends and still have a relationship together as his parents. But he couldn't forgive him for years, Stephen. And you can kind of feel all that that angsty 70s cinema that you're talking about being rendered in this yeah, movie. And absolutely. That, that Richard Dreyfuss character being one part Spielberg and, like, the idea of wonder and wanting to vanish and one part his dad kind of abandoning his kids in favor of— this this journey that he wants to go on himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a really it's a, it's such an interesting deep movie. Maybe I I might have fucked up. It should maybe it should be number one. <laughs> um, and it's it, I also think it's very interesting what you said about Star Wars too because you know Star Wars came out four months before this and obviously Lucas and Spielberg are creative compatriots and also pals and you know there's just that that famous story about they both thought that the other's film was going to be more successful yeah. and so they both bet back-end points uh-huh. on whoever was more successful. And if... Turns out that they didn't need either one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're both going to be fine. Yeah, yeah they're going to be fine. But Spielberg was quite confident that Star Wars was going to was gonna win and was going to be an iconic, historic movie franchise. And now he owns a small piece of 
the Lucas Empire uh, because he won that wager. That guy. I hope yeah, everything comes together for him. It's lucky, you know. It's fortunate to make these small movies like Ready Player One and his dotage. Um, number two, Chris Raiders. Yeah, I don't have a lot more to add from what you said. I I like how Raiders had a moment, I think, a couple of years ago with that Soderbergh thing and a couple of other things where people were talking a lot about like, oh, this is just, it doesn't get any better than Raiders. And I actually think that it, it, when you watch it, it's on the line between that 70s vibe. I mean, when you watch Raiders now, it does, it doesn't feel, feel antiquated, but it's hard to imagine such a languorous opening. I mean, he does not get to Karen Allen for about 35 minutes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it takes a while for him to get into Belloc and and Egypt and stuff like that. So I, I really enjoy some of the originality of that film and how it's still, even though I think people in their mind, like you're saying, Chris Pratt would love to be Indiana Jones. It's still it's still a very hard film to copy and to recreate the magic of it. Where are you at on Denholm Elliott? Phenomenal. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Denholm Elliott, your your dad would dig dig his work. <laughs> yeah. He's a really great character actor. Um my number two is Jurassic Park. Similarly, I don't have too much more to add uh, other than it's it's one of the five or ten most entertaining movies ever made. Uh, it's just a perfect fusion of—and I, I got it at the perfect time for mm-hmm. myself. I think I was maybe a young teenager or even younger than that. And it's also hard to overstate, I think, because I'm a little bit older than you. We've probably experienced this a couple of times over the course of our life with, like, Michael Jackson or something. But— the approval rating of Jurassic Park is hard to overstate. That's true. How immediately and unbelievably popular that movie was upon upon release was just like everybody heard what it was. Steven Spielberg was making a dinosaurs movie. It's like okay, I'm, I'm going to see that like yeah. three or four times. Yeah. yeah, I think I did see it three times. And the other thing too that's great about it is it is this perfect fusion of it set a new standard for what um, computer generated mm-hmm. graphics could be in a film, and it also has incredible practical special effects. You know, it has this Stan Winston work on the ground where you can see, like I said, Laura Dern with her head down on the, on the Triceratops, or you can see the, the Tyrannosaurus f- claw foot pressed down and the, and the footprint. There is all these specific tactile touches in the movie that I'm not going to say make it feel real because that would make me sound like an idiot, but make it feel lived in and actual. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Jurassic Park number two. Before we go to our number ones, let's, uh, let's ping pong around – the, the filmography a little bit. What do you, what do you, what, what's a movie that you think needs some attention here that we're not getting to? You want to talk about, you want to talk about Minority Report? Yeah. It's right outside. I'm, that's a number six for me. It's probably the darkest popcorn movie he made. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and depending on how you feel about AI or what you consider AI to be or whether you consider that to be his movie or Kubrick's movie. I wish it was a Kubrick movie. That's my big problem with it. Yeah. It's pretty high on my list, but um, I think actually if it were a Kubrick movie, it would have been even more dark. Yeah. And Minority Report, you're right, is is shockingly cynical. Yes. Um, some people have noted that the things that that movie satirizes are actually treated in a very straightforward manner in Ready Player One. There's some acceptance of the, oh, yeah? of the satire, the sort of like, one day an eye scanner will show us every advertisement that is perfect for us. And, yeah. You know, Ready Player One is kind of the uninvestigated version of that. Yeah, so it, it's like, oh, for sure. Like, that's just like, it goes without saying. Exactly. Uh, there's religious overtones to Minority, Minority Report that don't often pop up in a lot of his movies. Um, I think that Minority Report is something that is probably the ugliest world, one of the uglier worlds that he has set a movie in. Uh, obviously, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan are rooted in historical fact, but like this dystopia 
is he feels more like Tomorrowland than he does like a dystopia yeah. kind of director. Um, and I know that Ready Player One kind of has it both ways, right? It has a bit of both. It's but it's more wonder than, yeah. than it is terror, right? Um, but yeah, that's very true. And I think it's also it's certainly the only movie that he made in which like a man's eyes are surgically removed, you know, yeah. or where, where drug addiction is a major theme. I think that's some, something fascinating about it. Also, he was really pushing it stylistically. I feel like the cinematography with all the, the overexposed light, just like burning out frames and a lot of the helter-skelter camera movement. It's got one of the low-key best set pieces is the Colin Farrell, Tom Cruise fight in the factory. So it's also a great Colin Farrell performance. Yes. Early, or early, uh, Farrell making a bid for for your heart. That's right. Um, it's also one of the first movies that um, it's not one of the first. Maybe the fourth or the fifth movie that um, Janusz Kaminski made with yes. him. Yes, and it feels more like what all Steven Spielberg movies look like now. This sort of like cloudy, natural light flooding through into a dingy area. Yeah, you know the movies that he made with him before that: AI, Saving Private Ryan, Amistad. Those movies are in the real world, and there's something dreamlike about Minority Report too that is really interesting. What um what's a what's a bad Spielberg movie? He's made a lot of bad movies too. Yeah, I think that there are bad there are minor movies and then there are bad movies. Okay, um, I'm kind of out on the Tintin experiment, mm-hmm. the BFG mocap thing, the the weird like I just want to keep making movies that like millions and millions of six and eight year olds are gonna buy stuff for. You hate kids. You've always hated kids. Well I think the kids in Spielberg movies are are great. I think when Spielberg tries to make movies explicitly for kids, I'm kind of I'm kind of out. I felt this way about Hugo too on the Scorsese tip, yeah. just to go back to that where I was like, I don't know, could you just make a movie for me? Yeah. Just, and not for nine year old Right. Me? Don't wait twenty years to make the Irishman and now you have to like Photoshop dudes' faces. Like, yeah. get after it. I agree. Or just like you know, make silence. <laughs> I don't care. Right. Um, what's what, a bad? What, what, so would you, would you put Hook in the same category? Well, no. I mean, Hook. I actually I have a very big soft spot for Hook. Let's because go because it's one of the first movies where I learned about stuff happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Hook was a very big premiere magazine news and notes movie. It was a hugely anticipated film. People were like, "Man, is there going to be anything bigger than Hook?" Why was that? Well, set the, uh, set the scene. I think it was a tumultuous time in Julia Roberts's life. People don't remember, but th- she did pull Runaway Bride. I mean, like, it, mm-hmm. she, there was a lot of Julia Roberts gossip around the time. And I think it was a, if I remember correctly, like, one of those really, like, oh, so Dustin Hoffman's made a choice. Mm-hmm. And and that we're just going to have to go with that, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, and Dustin Hoffman is, like, a very, he's he's dark in this movie as Captain Hook, you know? And, um... I think it's like, what do you think of this movie? This is this due for a revival, a, a, re, a critical revival? Is there a Spielberg movie here that like you think is due for like, oh, you know, it's actually the really like the heater in Spielberg's filmography? I'm I'm preparing my version of that for Ready Player One ten years from now okay. um, yeah. because I do think that there's some interesting ideas in it. I don't know. I mean, I have a soft spot for Hook too because of a, the time when I saw it. I definitely saw it in theaters. I don't. I had no real awareness of it as a Spielberg product. Actually, I probably understood some of the other movies we've talked about here more like that. I, I understood it as a Robin Williams movie, um, and that this was really in the heyday of Robin Williams's movie stardom. Yeah, and it's quite an antic performance. I also just the chance of Rufio in the back of my mind echoing forever. It's also crazy long, right? It's long. It's it, the colors are insane. If you think about all the Never Neverland, like the painting that goes yeah. on. Um, 
there, there, it's like an interesting mess. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it has as much to say as it thinks it does. It, it, it was kind of a forebearer of, um, like reboot culture. Yeah, sure. Like let's reimagine p- the story of Peter Pan. Let's get Lin Manuel. Yeah, yeah, like we're actually literally getting a version of Hook this year with um. Christopher Robin, the new Winnie the Pooh right. movie, which is all about Ewan McGregor playing a grown-up version of Christopher Robin and then going back into Winnie the Pooh's world as an adult. I mean, that is Hook. Yeah. So, you know, there, it obviously had an influence on people. Um, it's at least interesting. I find like I found I find the BFG and the Terminal like completely uninteresting and bad. Yeah. Um, hard to watch actually. Tin Tin I thought was frivolous. You know, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is. I don't know. You you want a cape for that as a longtime Shia fan? No, I and and it's too bad because if you and I don't mean to be bleak, but if you're talking about like a finite amount of movies that Spielberg is going to make left, uh, the fact that he's going back to this again after that movie, but writing Shia out, which is their prerogative, and I can completely understand why. But it's like, do we really need another Indiana Jones movie? Was there a better way to end one of the great franchises than Last Crusade? I don't think so. You yeah. know, they're making a fifth one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, like the fact that one of the last, say, like five or six Spielberg movies is going to be another Indiana Jones movie that has like a one in ten chance of of being great. Yeah, that is disappointing. You're right. What do you think of E.T.? I was just uh, reprimanded for my lukewarm take on E.T. by Amanda. And if my wife listens to this, she will also uh, make me sleep on the couch because it's a <laughs> beloved movie by many people in my house in my life. I'm kind of not indifferent to it. It's just that there are other movies that I love so much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I, what do you think about it? I put it down here at number eight, and now I'm like, why did I do that? You I don't really. I don't really care. Five no, I don't really like care 14th? about ET. Yeah, I think it's fine. I think if I had a choice of what to watch, I'd rather watch Lincoln. You know, I'd, I'd rather watch Last Crusade. I'd I'd rather watch. Maybe I not, never maybe not like Amistad. it's time to watch ET. No, I think the beginning of ET. I mean, you have to understand also is that ET is one of those movies that's been bit so much that so many people have like basically based entire film franchises or television shows Stranger Things off of mm-hmm. that uh, going back to the original source material is not always that rewarding for stuff like that. Do you think it's because we don't have kids? Maybe. But the parents aren't that big of a deal in the E.T. But I think that that's a good movie to show to children. I, I rode bikes. So I don't need to have a <laughs> child to understand like what it's like to ride a bike across okay. the moon. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Uh, any any other Spielberg movies you want to address? You're a big Munich guy, which I think is pretty overrated. Uh, I can understand why you think that. But I think that the, again, the opening 35 minutes of Munich are like, everybody just needs to put their cameras down. The, this guy's the best. Okay. Yeah. Deal. Um, let's talk about number ones. Yeah. Do we share number one? We sure do. I can, just, I can just tell. Because it's probably one of the... I think that if you were really going to press me and say, okay, what's a perfect movie? What is a movie that uh, has a delightful script but could be a silent film? What is a movie that has drama, humor, scares, laughs, uh, tension, uh, humanity, great performances, great music? It's Jaws. Jaws. Jaws is a perfect movie. I now see Jaws uh, every July 4th at the Arclight when they play it. Um, I could watch it once a month. I wouldn't get bored of it. There, Every time I see those guys comparing scars in the galley of Robert Shaw's boat, I'm like, has there ever been anything better than this? Than Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw being like, are you still wearing a sweater when he pulls his 
his shirt down and his yep. chest hair is there. Yep. I mean, I just don't even know what to say about it. Every shot in there is iconic. You could f- show me any shot from Jaws, and I'd be like, that's from Jaws. It's completely true. It's it's similarly burned into our minds. I have a buddy um, that I went to college with named Nils, who you've met, Chris. Mm-hmm. And Nils would spend days at a time communicating to me and my friends just in Robert Shaw dialogue. I mean, he had a way of knowing exactly what to say to break somebody up from that movie. And Man you know, goes into the water, shark's in the water. <laughs> you want to just do Shaw for a while? <laughs> um, I'm not going to attempt any Shaw. But yeah, I think it's, it's an incredible script. It's incredibly well made. It, the perfect people are cast in it. Steven Spielberg, quite famously, just didn't know what he was doing when he was making the movie. It was a complete train wreck of a production. Yeah. Somehow, all of the bad things that happened turned into good things in the storytelling. You know, most notoriously, the fact that the shark itself didn't work. Bruce, named after Stephen's lawyer. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a what a what a wonderful, life-changing experience to see Jaws as a kid. Um, there's a very famous part in uh, a documentary that anybody listening to Big Picture should check out, which is called Visions of Light. Uh, it's an Ameri- It's a cinematography documentary. It's about the history of cinematography, and I think Bill Butler, who shot Jaws, but Jaws had a really great like camera crew. I think a bunch of the people who worked on Jaws, but Steven Spielberg initially wanted everything in Jaws to be nailed down on tripods, and they were like, Steven, if we do that, people are going to be throwing up in the aisles. If you have everything nailed down to, and we're just all swaying with the waves, and Spielberg's use of eyeline and uh, waterline in that movie, both in terms of like the swimmers, but also when you're on the boats and what the perspective is of the shark and what this sort of omniscient other person who's watching the boat sees and all the handheld stuff that they do on the boats and the handheld stuff that they do in Roy Scheider's house is just... I, it's it's one of those incredible happy accidents. If he didn't know what he was doing, God bless him. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a great song. You know, you just you know the words even though you don't know how you know the words. I, I'm thinking about this as you're talking about uh, even the way that it looks. It just it all feels familiar. Mm-hmm. And very few movies. I mean, what what other movies have that kind of power? I mean, Star Wars is a movie like that. Where yeah, you just, but I would even say that Jaws. I mean, I think the, the realism of Jaws and I know realism with a giant great white shark off mm-hmm. of uh, Nantucket is pushing it or Martha's Vineyard, but there's also the uh the personability of the characters. I think that that Roy Scheider, you know, you were talking about Harrison Ford as an iconic figure. I think that run of Roy Scheider movies in the late seventies is pretty important. Underrated movie star. Yeah. And uh and his ability to carry what is a very fantastical story with just being like, um, I'm just like this beleaguered cop who moved to the beach to have like a quiet life and now I'm fighting a great white uh, is is just one of those great, great stories. I really want to do the whole opening Shaw scene. Yeah. Y'all know me. <laughs> know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. I could just do that forever. We have to get um, some cans of Narragansett. Oh, on a better day. Chris, what else about Steven Spielberg do we need to say here? Should people go see Ready Player One? I think so. That's my, that's, that's my seal of approval. It's yeah, a, it's an interesting work. Yeah, go see a, go see Steven Spielberg movies. You can't really like you're not really going to be mad about it. I I I think. Well, let me ask you this: famously doing two in a year, one year off. Yep. Would you rather get one every two or three years? That really, 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 really was like this is what I want to say. Because you feel like he's racing a little bit now. He's almost racing against time. He's got three or four movies in production right now. 
West Side Story remake, a Leonard Bernstein film, uh, this the kidnapping of uh, Eduardo Morata, I think it's called, which was supposed to shoot before the post, but they couldn't cast the kid. Uh, there was and this, Indy 5. Yeah, and and this film about uh, war photographers that he was going to make with Jennifer Lawrence, I think. Yeah, um, there's there's there are several blog posts you can find about the unmade films of Steven yeah. Spielberg. I mean, he has been on and off myriad projects over the years. I think it doesn't bother me that he made two movies in a row like this because Ready Player One has taken four years to make. I mean, it's such a, a vast undertaking because – most of the movie looks like a video game. I mean, there's very few, there is human performance in it, but that's not the bulk of the story. And you can see that he made the post in three months. Yeah. You know, that that was just a shotgun wedding of a movie. And that was I, like, everybody's available. I need something to shoot over the summer. Let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. You know, he talked a lot about the urgency and the desire to do it after he read Liz Hanna's script. That's obviously why it happened. I quite like the post. Um, and I and I quite like Ready Player One, maybe not in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind if he's doing things back to back. I mean, honestly, he released Jurassic Park and, and Schindler's List in the same year. I mean, he's it's Steven Spielberg. Chris, let's wrap this up by talking about your favorite Spielberg performance. Sure. Pick one. Maybe wow us with a with a movie we haven't talked about much. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very partial to uh Tom Cruise in War of the Worlds. Uh, that's like a like a, a cool underrated one. I think that was a Really, really nice moment for him before things got too couch jumpy. But uh, if I'm going to pick one, I'm going to go with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Catch Me If You Can. And this is specifically around a time, and I think one of the big things with Leo is he's walked so far away from his natural charisma that you wonder if the charisma is actually very natural. I mean, he's obviously one of the most attractive movie stars we have. But, you know, he's always just like, I got to be in Shutter Island just burning holes in my own stomach or I got to be. And it's so, it's so rare to catch him in his, it's like, I'm just going to turn it on to 100. And unfortunately, the only other time he's done that really outside of catch me if you can is Django. So that's a tough one, <laughs> um, which he's phenomenal in Django, but that's not exactly the one you put on the greeting card. A complicated tale. Catch me if you can just finds him. just like, yeah, I believe it. What do you want to do? You want my checkbook? You want to fly this plane? You want to, you want to date my daughter? Like, I, whatever you want to do here. Because, like, I, I'm looking at the big blues and I'm in love. That's exactly how I feel about Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. <laughs> Take my you money. Can't, you can't compare. <laughs> Take my money, Daniel Day-Lewis. Just please come back. Do more films. Yeah. I, I feel it's, a, it's actually a very similar kind of performance. The movie is built around this one deeply charismatic person and their ability to wriggle in and out of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, that is what Lincoln is doing throughout the whole movie. That is what Frank Abagnale is doing throughout Catch Me If You Can. Um, I think Frank Abagnale is probably more of a con man than our 16th president. Yeah. But there is something so commanding and perfect about Kushner's dialogue, Spielberg's framing, and DDL. Just just crushing the now, light. Now, now, now. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Listen, if you want to read more about Ready Player One, check out TheRinger.com. You can see Kay Austin Collins' review of the film. I wrote a column about how all of us, myself included, can't get offline. And because we can't get offline, all the movies are about being online all the time. Um, check out Damage Control. There is a fascinating conversation yeah. about the movie there as well. And uh, yeah, read The Ringer. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Bonus big picture content, joined by the Podfather, 
Bill yeah. Simmons, your first appearance on the big picture. What's up, Bill? Is that true? Yeah, man. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't here sooner. I would have liked to have disagreed with CR about something, but uh, you were worried I was going to crap on Spielberg. Yeah, I feel like you're you're here to undermine a little bit. Is that not the case? No, I think Spielberg's like the greatest director we've ever had. Oh, well, fantastic. Is so, that possible? Well, Chris and I just talked about our top fives. And when we were talking about them, we kind of found it actually pretty hard to talk about the best movies because it's like, what do you say about Raiders of the Lost Ark at this point? It's like that movie just kicks ass. It just like it invented a whole kind of movie. Right. So, yeah, he's probably the best popcorn movie director ever. I feel like the hardest thing to do as a creative person is make great stuff that appeals to everybody. And I don't care whether it's movies or whether it's writing or whether it's a podcast or a TV show or whatever. Why it's the single think, hardest thing to do. But why? So why? You what, can appeal like you can make the four and a half hour Gary Shandling documentary that appeals to Sean Fennessy. That's extremely rude that you would do this in public. I'm just saying <laughs> you can do that mm-hmm. and you can appeal to a small group of people that will absolutely love it and be over the moon delighted that you made this thing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are just going to turn it off. And the balance, I think, especially when you get to Spielberg's level is how do you make awesome stuff that is for everybody? It's the hardest thing to do. So, like, I look at a movie like E.T., and, you know, E.T. is one of the five greatest movies of all time when you factor in the fact that it's 36 years old and anybody's kids could watch it now and it's still cool. Mm -hmm. It could hit everybody from age two to age 100, and it's actually a good movie. Chris and I were just talking about the fact, though, that it's not as high on our list because I think because we don't have kids. So we haven't right. had as much of a relationship to it in the last 20 years. That, that's how I felt. I I felt like E.T. was dead for me, and then I watched it through the lens of my kids, and I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. And then like, if I'm alive long enough for my kids to have kids and watch it through there, um, I think I'm with you. Jaws is the best movie, not only that he ever made, but it's probably the first modern great movie that still is completely watchable. It's incredible. You can. I, I, we were saying we know it like the back of our hand, too. Like I know it's every so beat, great. every line of dialogue, every look. It's just so, It's also just fun. It's had so many different incarnations, too, because the TVs got better. And you, there's certain movies with the widescreen where um, it just wasn't as good on TV, and it was really hurt the movie. And now with that movie, it's like, you know, if you have the right TV, nice big TV with HD and the widescreen, how it was meant to be shot, it's incredible. And the sound, the John Williams score booming, you know? It's that, so good. Yeah. And also, like, when you think about the point of his career that he was at and all the people he was competing against and— he made the best movie of anybody that decade out of all those young guys, I think. It's it's certainly the one that's held up the best. It basically created summer movies. Mm-hmm. Um, for better and worse. For better and worse. Um, I was, I'm old enough to remember when it came out and just how important it was and how huge it was. And going with my parents to um, one of the beaches in Massachusetts that always had a ton of flies and were terrible, but you drove to the beach and... I remember being so scared of the ads for that movie that we were walking on the beach, 50 feet from the beach, like on a sidewalk, and being scared that Jaws was going to come out and get us. Like, that's how effective it was. Not to mention it was a great movie. And when Robert Shaw dies, that's still one of the 10 greatest scenes of all time. You can't believe it's happening. You uh, you missed me doing a little bit of my Robert Shaw imitation earlier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I had similar upbringing is right because you're growing up in Massachusetts I'm growing up in Long Island and yeah. Amity is kind of a fusion of Massachusetts and, and Long Island that's oh, like yeah. what that town is totally it's like Cape Cod meets I don't know the Hamptons or something like that Simmons Family Christmas every, or uh, Simmons Family Cape Week go to the Cape every year starting mm-hmm. in the late in the mid late 70s when my dad's mom was alive and one time we biked to where they filmed 
um, some of the Jaws stuff. And it was it was like ha- hallowed ground, hallowed ground, hallowed ground, ground, yeah, hallowed ground. Yeah. I can't speak. It'll fuck you up though if you think about what what you think happens there. You know that, that children are eaten by a giant shark. Yeah. That's evil. That's what was great about Jaws though is that it went there. It did. It pulls no punches. And you know, Roy Scheider's kid almost died. I also think that's a great Roy Scheider movie, and that's a whole other conversation. But it's great Dreyfus. It's the best of those three guys. Um, Close Encounters did not hold up as well. Oh, see, very cool movie at the time. I went out of my way to say I think this is. I didn't put it at number one, and then I, the more I talked about it, the more I was like, "This is really great stuff." For a reason that I think you would understand, which is like pretty good divorce movie, pretty good like children of divorce movie. Yeah, all that stuff's great. That stuff's really good. I just try to watch it with my kids, and it's too slow. It's slow. It's, yeah. it's just it's it's moving at a pace that the cool thing about Jaws is it's not slow. No, no, it's it's it, propulsive. It's it's an, out of its time in that way. Yeah, yeah um, but then the arc of him, like you know, th- even Duel was really good. Mm-hmm. For we a didn't TV talk about movie. Duel at all. Yeah, Duel was like his first real movie. I thought like the HBO documentary. I really would have just concentrated on Spielberg becoming Spielberg, mm-hmm. and I probably would have ended it right after he meets Kate Capshaw and makes the second Raiders movie. Because after that, it was like you're talking about the greatest. I don't know the the greatest first fifteen years of anyone's career ever, and I feel like I would you, say actor or director. And but you often don't. The reason I thought you were going to come in here and, and diss him is because you don't respond to a lot of his more recent movies. Like you're not a Lincoln guy, you know. You're not. It's I don't. Fine. I don't think you're going to be a Ready Player One person. You didn't love the Post, you know. Like you, you don't seem to be as into him doing the historical dramas. You don't seem like you're really in a Minority Report. The movies that people really like that have come out in the last twenty years. Yeah, they were, those were all those were all solid movies. I don't feel like they were that special. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing with Spielberg that has has been disappointing, and again, you're nitpicking with the greatest director of all time. Yep. Although some people would say Kubrick, whatever. Um, who else would be in the top? Scorsese. Scorsese, who made you know the body of work with Scorsese is really it's more up, up and down up than and down. we want to admit. But like, you want to talk Akira Kurosawa? Is he on I'm your not, list? Not no, ready to talk no, about okay. Kurosawa. Um, but I think the thing with Spielberg that's been disappointing is as he's aged, that perspective has not gone in his movies in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he's made these movies be like, I'm cooler, I'm I'm better at what I do, but my my childlike wonder at everything hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. I I liked Munich a lot less than most people. Uh, Chris is very high on it. It's Some people high are high on Munich. I thought it was a huge disappointment and I thought it could have been so much meatier and cooler and there could have been all these underlying things to it. And, and, uh, it's a rare movie of his that there. I would have liked to have seen made by someone else. Yeah. You know, I think so. I think a different director with a little bit more style who knew how to do like a heist assassination movie could have made it actually more entertaining. Right. Which maybe that isn't necessarily the point that that's a very serious story, but it's a movie that should be entertaining because it's a thriller. It should have been like a Michael Mann movie. Right. It, like a vintage Michael Mann or just somebody who approached it that way. And he, I never felt like he knew what that movie was, and I didn't really enjoy it that much. I'm um, pretty sure Michael Mann w- was making your beloved Miami Vice when he probably Spielberg was. was making Maybe this, that yeah. was part of the problem. So they both screwed up. My thing with Spielberg, and I always do this with music bands or whoever, is like if you just got hit by the, a car at the peak of your career, how would people remember you? Um if he got just hit by a car in 1986, we'd have been like, wow, that guy, oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. So if you look at it Jimmy from Hendrix. that point on, yeah, yeah if you look yeah. at that from that point on, are we happy with the movies he's made? They're, they, yeah. 
I think he's been good. I think it could have gone a lot worse. But I still think that first 15 years of his career is ridiculous. Let me ask you one sort of recent movie. Yeah. Jurassic Park. Yeah. Do you care? Yeah, I think it's an important movie. I had Jeff Goldblum on my podcast recently, um, which we haven't run yet. But um, I don't really know if there had been a movie quite like that before it came out. Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, this is a blockbuster. We're going all in. Maybe there's another movie, but I, I don't really remember the approach of that being like, here's a huge book. Um, we have Spielberg. This is going to be a big deal. It probably won't be that good, but it's going to be fucking awesome to watch. And that's how they did it. I think it's actually good, though. I think it does some of the same stuff that Jaws does, where it's really entertaining. It's not slow. All the performances are perfect. It's actually better in that respect than you remember. Chris was talking about how it's actually pretty tight. Yeah, you know, it's like two hours. My kids it, like it. It moves, you know, yeah. which is pretty rare for those movies. And also it invented this whole like universe of Jurassic Park movies. Like, There's a Jurassic Park movie this year that we're going to, everybody's going to go see again. It's kind of amazing that he's been able to do that. I think the biggest flaw with him is there. there's a calculating thing about him that people sense that all the choices he makes, he's making because it's a career choice and it's not, you know, you think about the other great directors from either that he grew up with or just people that we know and that we care about. And we talk about Michael Mann. Like, mm -hmm. Michael Mann had this look. We I can describe all the things about Michael Mann. He's fastidious. Um, he, like, he was obsessed by certain things. He loved telling the story of, like, here's an anti-hero. Um, here are people trying to figure out a job. Here's somebody who loves a job more than they love people in their life. Like, he had it's like these touch the points. Themes, yeah. And Spielberg's just kind of all over the place. And it's like, oh, the wonder, the childish wonder. Mm -hmm. And then it's, then he does different things. And then he does Schindler's List. And it's like, my attitude of that, as was happening, was he's doing this because he wants to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think that's fair, but it's a little like how we treat LeBron. Where it's like, why are you doing this way? Why'd you do this interview? He's very, where, he's very conscious of his own narrative. Always. Yeah. So even like when he does DreamWorks and he forms his company... With uh, with Geffen and with Katzenberg. Uh, Katzenberg, and it's like, well, this is a big deal. This would be like, you know, not to compare DreamWorks to The Ringer, but it's like, all right, I'm forming this company. I'm all in on this company, mm -hmm. and yet does projects outside the company. Yes, it was like there was a, it, as a business decision. It's like, no, it's actually better for me to do this outside. And it's like, well, why'd you form the company then? Right. The whole point of this company was you were all in. And there was a really good DreamWorks book that both of us have read from mm -hmm. a few years ago. And he just makes that point. It's like he formed a company because it was a smart move. But he wasn't one of those like, roll up your sleeves, guys. We're about to change Hollywood. If you called me and you were like, I'm working on a cover story for Sports Illustrated, I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. what are Why uh, are we doing this? And by the way, I'm doing um, I'm, I'm doing a new podcast with, <laughs> K with Cadence 13. Like, what— you're either in or you're out. Yep. So it just seems like all the moves that he's made have been like, it seems like I should do this. He's strategic, though I, don't, I wouldn't hold that against him. I mean, honestly, no. I, it's kind of impressive the way that he has manipulated the game over the years and bent it to his will completely. I mean, he is still has been for 20 plus years basically the most powerful person in Hollywood. But I think that's why there's always that but with him. Mm -hmm. Whereas like with Scorsese and with Coppola, Coppola, who really his career completely fell apart mm -hmm. in the early 80s. But now we look at it romantically and it's like, oh man, he just loved his work too yes. much. Oh, he fought to he save Godfather. He told the stories he wanted to tell. Oh man, he was never the same after Apocalypse Now. That guy just like, meanwhile, he's done 10 shitty movies. Yeah. He Scorsese, took, he took the money. same thing. Yeah, Scorsese, oh man. 
Oh man, it's just he loves it, man. He just does, tells his stories. He'll take chances. He'll do well, do Cape Fear. He'll do like he'll try things. Spielberg's done that, but we it, we didn't respond to it that way. Like Catch Me If You Can is a really cool inventive. What was that on your list? Uh, Catch Me If You Can is number nine. And Chris and I were just talking about how the that that Leo. It's also great. It's a great Leo. Leo. Yeah, it's really, really him kind of at his best. It falls apart with about a half hour to go. All of a sudden, they catch him, and it's just kind of over. It's like, what yeah. happened? I thought. Yeah, the real life kind of distorted the ability to make the movie more fun. But but that was cool. Minority Report. He tried something. Mm-hmm. He does try things. It's it just always feels like it's like an alien landed in earth and it's like, I'm going to be the greatest movie director of all time. And what would the human beings think I should do now? I do think he deserves credit for it though. It's like, even the stuff that like you and I don't care about Tintin or the BFG, like all that stuff I think is considered mostly a failure, but those were weird, interesting swings for him to take. Yeah. And ready player one is kind of like that too. It's basically a movie that looks like a video game. Now here's, I'm going to now defend, I'm going to argue against the, my own point. Okay, great. I'm going to do the Stephen A. Smith, Max Conrad. Okay. <laughs> He was so rich after E.T. that it's amazing he's had the 35 years that he did. He basically hit the jackpot in the most obscene way you can hit as a creative person. He he became immortal professionally, but then also made a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. And then made even more money from Raiders. And like, and I, I mean, by... By 1985, he wouldn't have even really had to work unless Amy Irving hadn't divorced him and taken half his money. I have no comment about that. Which, of course, was <laughs> glossed over in the documentary about him. It seemed important. He married his lead actress from Raiders 2, who he mistakenly said he met in 1985, even though the chronology was he was still married until 87. You think this part will make it into the podcast, Bill? Why would you not leave this? <laughs> I'm just saying he, he you know— it could have gone really, really wrong for him, and that was really the only bad thing that happened with him. Yeah, he it, left his wife for somebody else. He it was expert at managing his narrative through and through. I mean, he's always been you can't in total me control. Out of the podcast, I'm, dare you. I'm not. Don't That's worry. Bullshit. This is a, this Zach is Zach Mac. You don't touch this. Okay, this is a safe space for you, Bill. You can say whatever you, you can want, say what I want, as long as we don't slander anybody. So, or I'll or I'll just take my my podcast to <laughs> I'll do the Spielberg. Okay, new host of the, the Big Picture, Juliet Littman. Is that what no, you're going to do? I'll, okay. do? I'll do stuff with other people like Spielberg. <laughs> okay. No, but it, wasn't that weird that he did that? I never understood that. Well, it, you've created a company with two other people. You own one third of it. I'm like, why would you not do everything in that and try to turn that into the biggest behemoth there ever was? I think because he knew that there were some places where he could use the resources of other places to take bigger chances. Then don't form the company. Well, I think he didn't want to go bust. Now, obviously, DreamWorks ultimately didn't turn out to be this legacy no, brand that they wanted it to be. It didn't work. Um, you know, it's still around in some forms. And the animation stuff actually makes a lot of money now. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a mistake that people are still like, you tried something. That's cool. He got credit for it. You tried something, but then you didn't, didn't go totally on. try it. I'm looking at your list really quickly. And then I know you have to go. Oh, Saving Private Ryan, I think, is an important movie for him. I agree. I think the first 20 minutes of that movie are absolutely one of the best 20-minute stretches ever. What about the next hour and 30 minutes? It's tough. There's things, I'm sure there's things he would cut out. Uh, It's Goldman, one of Goldman's best pieces ever, Mm -hmm. when he just completely destroys it and how it's false because it tells the perspective through one guy's lens, but then it turns out it's the other guy. It's like a narrative failure. But the first 20 minutes are out of control. Yeah, we were saying earlier, never been we a never saw like a movie that. like that. We just never saw anything like that whole barrage, that scene on the beaches is, is incredible. It's that like was one of those, in the theater, when it finally calms down, 
And I saw, I was living in Boston. I saw that in a full theater. And when it finally calmed down, people were like shaking. Oh yeah. You could feel it. It was, it was like we had witnessed like a car crash. And you remember, it's like, wow, there's two hours to go. You remember hearing that sound of the, a bullet whizzing and then hitting flesh. And I was like, whoa, this yeah. is not what it was like in it Rambo. Felt like, yeah. It felt like know? being in the war. Nobody had ever done that. And I think as he's made so many movies that I think some of the little stuff like that has been lost. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that Jaws was the first of its kind and like Duel was the best TV movie ever. Mm-hmm. TV movies were terrible and he made a great one and put itself on the map and um, all that stuff. First Raiders is like, it's a little slow now. I'm fine with it. I think it works. It takes some just, time I getting to the story. I judge everything by my kids who have, uh, you know, 21st century ADD with pop mm-hmm. culture. It could move faster. Yeah, I still think it's pretty fun. It's not as perfect as Jaws. It's not as good as I remember it in 1982, where it was like, I saw In Cleveland Circle with my dad, which was his movie theater in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and it was like, you almost didn't know what to do after. Like, wow, that was one of the most incredible experiences of my lifetime. I know. How did they, oh my God, and you just want to talk about it for an hour. I wish that I could have that feeling again, but it's hard as we get older. We don't get movies that way. I felt that way. There's been times, like, I felt the first time I saw Get Out, I felt maybe not 100% Raiders, but mm-hmm. it was just like, wow, that was awesome. The theater was in. It was like everything you want from going to a theater. It's very true. It's rare, though. It's rare now. And it's funny. We were talking about, Chris and I were talking about how Star Wars came out in June of 77. Yeah. Close Encounters came out in November of 77. I mean, that's three months away. Those are movies that are probably going to live for 100 years. And Amazing. I'm, I'm old enough to remember seeing both in the theater and Close Encounters which I don't feel like has aged as well as some of the other stuff, but in the moment in the theater when he, you know, he goes up and and everybody was just kind of shell-shocked after you leave the theater, like, oh my God, are there aliens? Like, it's, it's traumatizing. It was yeah. really, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> Should I fall asleep tonight? Uh, but yeah. Anything and he got else? the best out of Dreyfus. Always. The other thing, he got really good performances out of people that we take for granted now, but then if you look at him and it's almost like a Popovich type thing, you know? Interesting. You're like Dreyfus. Those are two of his three best movies. And Leo, that's probably the most I've liked Leo in a movie. Hmm. Um, other than maybe This Boy's Life and Titanic. He's always been good with Hanks. Hanks is really good. He gets yeah. like a good, it's almost like Hanks's character actor, Hanks, a little bit. Yeah, he's just Jimmy Stewart. You know, he really, he makes him his everyman. Cruz, I, I, have, con- I have conflicted thoughts on Minority Report. I think both it's a movie I'd never watch again. Oh, I disagree. I really? watched it a week ago. War, War of the Worlds and Minority Report, I think, are both good. I actually wish Cruz would do a really serious movie with him. I think, actually, if he did one of those historical dramas, it'd be a good thing for Cruz. Mm. Will, will there ever be a podcast where you and I don't talk about what Tom Cruise should do next? I, it, it should be The Verdict or a movie like that. He's okay. got to have some sort of problem. Well, maybe we can get Steven to do it with Cruz needs to admit that he's in his mid-50s now. And once he does that, his whole, the next phase of his career is going to be humming. Like, I I tried to watch American Made on an airplane. You told me I'd like it. I just couldn't take it seriously. He's playing a pilot in the 80s, and he's got this weird wig on, and he's 20 years older than the guy he was playing, and I just couldn't get past that. I was like, this is crazy. You're a 56-year-old man, Tom Cruise. Maybe one day he'll play his age. Bill Simmons, What? anything else about Steven Spielberg? No, I'm pro. I'm pro. I'm pro. It's not, dude, not a controversial take. No, it's just like, come on, guys. We're going to pick it. When, when you do the best directors thing and people get a little haughty about it and they have to say, 
you know, they, they list like they, he's got to be in there. He has to be one of the five directors that are mentioned first. I'm with you, man. That's, has to. that's why we made this podcast. Yeah. Bill All Simmons. Right. Thank you. My pleasure. Looking for a laptop that delivers on both performance and price? The Acer Swift 5 offers a powerful Intel Core processor, super slim design, and more. Discover new possibilities with the Acer Swift 5. Go to acer.com, click on store, and enter coupon code BIGPICTURE at checkout to receive 10% off, plus free grand shipping on a Swift Series laptop, including already discounted models. This offer is valid through April 30th and limited to one per qualified order. Windows hello, the password is you, Windows 10. Fans of The Ringer, we have some exciting news for you. We have a new merchandise store with a shiny storefront that you can check out right now. We've got hats and hoodies and even an exclusive Shea Serrano Disrespectful Dunk t-shirt. My favorite t-shirt is the Bill Simmons coined Irrational Confidence Guy. Check that one out. Your friends will be jealous when they see you strutting down the street with an official Ringer zip-up hoodie. Previously available only to Ringer staffers, we are letting you, our loyal listeners, get first dibs on the goods. Go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your merch now. These are limited run items and will not last long. Once they are gone, they are gone. Again, check out theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today. You can find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description.